welcome to episode 1192 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangrass and really from our Patreon supporters. I'm Ben Lindberg of The Ringer, joined by Jeff Sullivan of Fangrass. Hello, Jeff. How are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm doing okay. We are doing a team preview podcast, our third to last of these things, which we are not entirely sad to say. But just just say it. We're ecstatic <laughs> that this is almost no. over. Not because the product is any worse, but just because it's so much podcasting. It's a grind. <laughs> these are long episodes, but I do feel like they prepare us and hopefully the listeners for the season. So today's season preview series episode will be the Minnesota Twins with Aaron Gleeman and the Texas Rangers with Levi Weaver. We will get to Aaron very shortly. A couple quick things before we do. We had some extension news since the last time we talked, and generally extension news is not all that exciting because no one is changing teams, no one is acquiring anyone, someone is staying where he already is, which can be exciting for the fans of that team, but often not so exciting for other people to talk about. But In this case, I think there are things to say about both of these extensions. You wrote about one of them. The first, of course, the Reds extending Eugenio Suarez, and the second, the Astros extending Jose Altuve. That one notable because it's bigger money and because it's the MVP and because it's Altuve. The former notable maybe because it forecasts something about the free agent market or the future of extensions or what players think the market will look like. That's what you wrote about anyway. Yeah. So with uh, Eugenio Suarez's contract extension, he got, what, seven years and $66 million, eighth year option. And what is interesting to me about this one is Suarez, he, uh, he still had several years of control left, but he signed away four years of would-be free agency and, and potentially five. And you don't see a lot of seven or seven-ish year extensions for players that have three years of service time. Usually those players will maybe sign for four years, maybe three years, a couple team options. But Suarez gave away uh, a lot of his featured free agency for what I think personally is a fairly modest cost of about $11 million a year when he gets to those free agent years. And I I think for one thing in Suarez's case, who knows if his 2017 breakout is going to be for real. Like a, like a lot of players, he hit more home runs than he had before. And who knows what that means? He's worked hard to be a better defensive third baseman, but maybe the really good defensive third baseman shouldn't have to work so hard. But in any case, what I think is a, a general idea that probably applies in this case that would be accurate is that I think that a player like Suarez, who is good but not necessarily great, is maybe a little more afraid of getting to free agency than than maybe a player like this would have been before. Because, of course, players look at the market that we just had. And even though Ben and I have, have both talked about how the market is behaving fairly rationally, and we don't think that there's anything nefarious going on, there's no collusion between the teams, I think that you look at this from a player's perspective and they see a lot of players who were without work for months. There are still some decent players who remain without work, like Greg Holland and Alex Cobb. And there was a the quote, I think it was in the Jeff Passner article, that a free agent said he just doesn't want to get moosed. He doesn't want to get the, the Mike yeah. Moustakas situation to happen to him. And so I think that free agency just doesn't have the draw that it used to. And if this is a blip, then it will self-correct. But I think there are reasons to believe that certain elements of this free agency market will not be a blip. And so if players are less excited to get to free agency, then they will worry less about signing away their free agency. And so you could just see a little more urgency toward these 
money grabs, if that's what you want to call them. And so this way, Suarez, he'll still be a free agent at some point, but he won't be a free agent when he's, I think it was going to be 29 and he wasn't going to, uh, he was going to be a free agent under the current CBA. So there wasn't going to be time for anything to correct. And so Suarez, or maybe it was his agent's idea. I'm not really sure, but think that there was just a little less reluctance to, uh, mm-hmm. to sign for so long because who knows if the money was actually going to be there. Yeah, and I guess it's risky to extrapolate from one transaction or one agreement, and maybe you could say, well, Suarez was never a top prospect, and he didn't sign a big bonus as an amateur, and he's been a very good player, but still not a very high-profile player. Maybe he just underrated himself a little bit. It wouldn't be the first player to do that. I don't know. It's it's not like there's never been an extension signed that was equally team-friendly or player-unfriendly prior to all of the concern about the free agent market. So I suppose you could say, well, we need more data to know whether this is going to be a trend. Does the Altuve extension in your mind add to that trend or not really? Is it a countervailing data point? So Altuve signed for five years and 151. That's the extension. And some of that is a signing bonus. It starts in 2020. So he was already under contract through 2019. He, of course, had an extraordinarily under market extension that he signed before he became an MVP type player before he added all this power. And so he was not making a lot of money. He will be making considerably more money. So the Astros, essentially, they just signed him for five of his free agent years now, a couple of years before he actually reached free agency. So he'll be making whatever it is, 30 million ish per season from age 30 to 34. So you could say, well, if Jose Altuve hit the free agent market right now, he'd make more than that. But of course, the team is assuming some risk here and that there's some chance that he could hurt himself in the next couple seasons or he could not be as valuable in the next couple seasons. And they're signing him now, assuming that he's going to continue to be superstar Jose Altuve a few years from now. So is this a under market extension that kind of fits in with the idea that players are wary of reaching free agency or is this sort of fair as well as we can calculate that? Altuve is a funny case. He signed a four-year, $12.5 million contract, and he signed it in the middle of 2013. He was supposed to kick in in 2014, and then there were club options for 2018, $6 million, and 2019, $6.5 million. Of course, that looks like nothing. There's a $25,000 All-Star Selection Award bonus, so Altuve has really been raking it in. What's funny about that case is that when Altuve actually signed that contract, he wasn't very good. He was young. But from 2011 through 2013, Jose Altuve was worth a total of 2.3 wins above replacement, according to Fangraphs. And then almost the instant he signed this extension, he became a superstar and a a young cost-controlled superstar. So it's not like I can't imagine the Astros saw that happening. I don't think anyone saw that happening. So everyone kind of looked out, except in a way, Jose Altuve. But anyway, he got his money. And uh, in this case, I don't think that this is a, a counter argument against the idea because we've had the conversation from time to time that maybe against all odds, the free agent market, the valuations have been pretty linear in that a four-win player has been paid twice as much as a two-win player, an eight-win player has been paid twice as much as a four-win player. We've talked about reasons why that might be, and that even if you have a superstar, which seems to be more valuable, that also means that you increase the risk. Because if that player gets hurt, then you lose that value, etc. I don't think that the market is linear anymore. I don't know if we can prove it 
But I think that you look at the players who didn't do so well in the market this year, and those are the the middle class types, as Travis Sochek and, and others have written about. And I think that in the Altuve case, he is a superstar. He's one of the best players in baseball. He's proven it now for four consecutive years. He's been unbelievably good. And so I think that if you're Altuve, he wasn't going to be afraid to reach free agency because the the really, really great players haven't been hurt. Hugh Darvish got his money. And Eric Hosmer, if you consider him a great player, he did very well. There weren't a JD Martinez did very well, and those aren't even necessarily Altuve level players. And so I don't think Jose Altuve was ever going to have a problem if he got to free agency as a great player. But if you're Eugenio Suarez, he was more likely to get to free agency as a kind of average or maybe a little better than average player. And and with those, I just think teams aren't quite so excited anymore, or at least that's what this market would have uh, suggested. But Altuve, mm-hmm. Altuve got the big money because he deserves the big money. Yeah, and it's nice to see him get paid, or in the future at least he will be paid something closer to what he's worth, and nice to see him stay with the Astros. Of course, he has meant a lot to that city and that organization, so good for him. One thing we do know is that minor leaguers will not be paid anytime soon. There is some news about that as well. There is a report in the Washington Post that an upcoming spending bill could exempt minor leaguers from federal labor laws. This has been an issue. Obviously, there's an ongoing class action launched by some minor leaguers a while ago complaining about their very pitiful and poor salaries. And MLB and the owners have been trying to say that they're like seasonal workers and they're not really subject to the same minimum spending laws as other industries are. And so now there's this bill that is proposed that evidently is going to have some sort of clause attached to it or might have some clause attached to it that would exempt minor leaguers from those labor laws. And it's backed by Mitch McConnell and some other representatives. And this is, you know, sort of there's a a statement from a minor league baseball president who's saying, we're not saying that minor league pay shouldn't go up. We're just saying that the formula of minimum wage and overtime is so incalculable. I would hate to think that a prospect is told you've got to go home because you're out of hours. You can't have any extra batting practice. It's those kinds of things. It's not like factory work. It's not like work where you can punch a time clock and management can project how many hours they're going to have to pay for. Anyway, he said a lot of pretty disingenuous things about this and I think we're all in agreement minor leaguers should make more. There's a lot of money in baseball. They're not making much of it at all, and it would be such a a drop in the bucket, really, for most teams, given, well, we've run through the math in the past about how much more it might cost just to pay minor leaguers something reasonable, and you'd think even just from a player development selfish standpoint, it would be good to have minor leaguers not have to worry about housing and food and all of that, but it looks like that is not going to change anytime soon. Well, we almost made it. I thought we had a chance, but... Ultimately, we are just another podcast that has now had occasion to say the name Mitch McConnell on it. So we are no longer the sole exception. Uh, I I remain, no matter what the legislation is going to say, I'm just still waiting for that, I don't know, good-hearted or even sinister-minded, I don't care, but just open-minded owner that just comes in and pays the minor leaguers anyway. And I'm not just talking about like the the Yankees have had a thing where they've paid minor league free agents a little extra money just because even if there's not the opportunity with the Yankees, at least you can make a better living hanging out at AAA. I'm not just referring to that, but you know, some owner can come in, piss off every single other owner and just pay his minor leaguers. I don't know, $100,000 and upwards from there. I know, and we've talked about this before, but if an owner did that, the real reason not to, aside from it is 
extra money is that the other owners would be really mad at you. But mm -hmm. so does, <laughs> what, is the, what does that mean? I, the owners have been mad at like Jeffrey Loria for a long time because he was just pocketing money, it seemed like. And he sold because, at least from what it sounds like, he sold because he was ready to. He could have kept owning the Marlins, but then they stopped making him money or something. <laughs> like, I don't know. I don't know. But if you're an owner and you piss off all the, all the other owners, so what? <laughs> if it's good for your organization and if you if you can sell it as a way that this is going to be good for player development and then we'll get more positive assets or however they talk, then that's good for you. So just do it. Someone, <laughs> right. I don't care who, just anyone. Would be nice. All right. And last thing I want to talk about just briefly there's been a lot of discussion over the last few days about whether Shohei Otani might be a minor leaguer himself. This is something that you and I talked about back when he signed, just as a complete hypothetical. Would a team dare to move him to the minors for service time-related reasons, just to get an extra year of control over him? And you talked to some front office people, I think, we heard, you heard, we agreed. It was probably unlikely at that point, unless Otani had a really disastrous spring. And you could say <laughs> that, uh, at least statistically speaking, Otani has had a pretty disastrous spring. So as we speak, he has a 298 OPS as a hitter in 28 plate appearances, and he has a 16.21 ERA as a pitcher including some B games and exhibition games and the like. So there are positives here, obviously. I think, you know, you've heard some positive things about his stuff as a pitcher, at least, and you can certainly point to his strikeout-to-walk ratio, for instance, which is pretty good. He's been kind of babbipped to death. He's also given up some home runs and things that are not encouraging. Anyway, if you look at his stat line, it looks like a minor leaguer's stat line in Major League Spring Training. So if the team had any temptation to try to move him to the minors, delay his promotion, and justify it by saying he needs more work, he needs more seasoning, he's trying to do this two-way thing, he's got more work than anyone else does, well, the stats are giving them an excuse, and maybe a, a decent excuse, at least just going by the superficial stats. So what do you think about the likelihood here? I mean, we could talk about other cases like this, and maybe we will in the next week or so, you know, whether it's Acuna or some other top prospect who's having a, a really strong spring and will just end up in the minors anyway, and a team will say it's so oh, because he's working on his defense or whatever it is, some sort of lame excuse like the Cubs did with Chris Bryant a few years ago, and, you know, he'll be down there for the minimum time, and then he'll be back up, and magically his defense will be okay on the first day that he's eligible to be back and still have that year of service time. In fact, the Braves reassigned Acuna to minor league camp on Monday, and he has a 1247 OPS in spring training. There's nothing more he possibly could have done to show he was ready, and he'll still be starting the season in the minors, where he can put up a 1300 OPS or something until April 13th or whatever it is. But Otani, you know, just hasn't looked great, at least in certain ways. So do you think that there is a chance that this happens? And should it happen, you know, given the constraints that teams are working with here, we don't have to like the system, but it is a collectively bargained system. And there is this loophole and there's this way around it. And teams are going to continue to exploit that loophole as long as it exists. When we talked about this before, I I think I had the throwaway line that if the Angels wanted to send Otani down to AAA to start the year, all he'd need 
need to do is have a spring training ERA over five. Currently, his spring training Cactus League ERA is over 25. So it makes it so much easier. But now, in a sense, I wonder if Otani's been so bad and a lot of the talk about him is observe the numbers and the numbers, there's no defending them. They're awful numbers. I wonder if from the Angels' perspective, they might be so bad that the team might get sort of defensive about it and say, no, he's he's still good enough and we're going to keep him at the majors. Because if Otani was this bad and then he went down to AAA to start the year, I imagine, I mean, how do you think that would be treated by the Japanese media? They would yeah. be just an absurdity. Whereas I think if the Angels weren't concerned at all and if Otani just you know, gave up a few too many home runs or he'd struck out a little too much and he had like a, a mediocre spring, just not a, a great one. Then they could send him down to AAA and and they could do so knowing like, look, he's he's actually we're not concerned, but he has a little work to do. And then we'll call him. They call him up in two weeks. But now I think that it might be better for Otani, for the team, for the media coverage, if they kept him as sort of an expression of, of confidence. And keep in mind, it's not like this has to be done on opening day, right? If he comes up and he struggles for the first month, then they can still send him down and preserve that service time if it seems like he really does need the seasoning. But I think they kind of have to keep him because otherwise the narrative might just get really powerfully negative. And I don't think that Otani needs that. I don't think the team needs that. And I can't imagine that Otani's spring is going to end as poorly as it's begun. But I mean, there's sort of like a a sickly thrill in seeing how poorly things have gone, even though his stuff is good and his power is there. And ultimately, that's all we should care about. I never expected this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the numbers are so ugly right now. Yeah, they really are. Yeah, you don't want it to turn into some sort of Keigawa situation where that just went south from a, a narrative perspective right away and he never really recovered. Of course, he's not the player that Shohei Otani is and there's no reason to think that things would play out in the same way, but I know what you mean. So that's going to be a story over the next week or so. Maybe we will return to it before opening day, but right now... We should take a quick break, and we'll be right back with Aaron Gleeman of Baseball Prospectus to discuss the Minnesota Twins. All right, so we are joined now by Aaron Gleeman, who, of course, is the editor-in-chief of Baseball Prospectus, the co-host of Gleeman and the Geek, and the editor, or one of the editors, of the new Baseball Prospectus Annual, as well as the author of his own forthcoming book about the Minnesota Twins, which we'll talk about in a little bit, but we should talk about the actual Minnesota Twins first. Hey, Aaron, how are you? Hello, guys. How's it going? Okay. Should we start just with what's in the news? I was going to start with something big picture but suddenly slightly smaller picture the twins don't have a shortstop for half the season or at least not the shortstop they thought they had so how big uh, an issue is that I, I know that shortstop depth is a strength of the system and of course Eduardo Escobar is around but Jorge Polanco will not be around for quite some time it's interesting because his overall performance last year was kind of mediocre mm-hmm because he was horrible in the first half, and then he was amazing in August and September. So if you're just trying to sort of replace his overall performance, I think that's doable. But the the reason it's such a buzzkill is that he was great in August and September as a 23-year-old, and they talked all about how the hitting coach, James Rousen, had you know revamped his approach and his swing, and it was had people like me all hyped up that, well, maybe now this guy can be a power-hitting shortstop, 
which then leads right into the 80-game PED suspension. So I think, you know, they have Eduardo Escobar, they have Irae Adrianza, they have uh, Eric Ibar, for whatever that's worth. So I think they're, like, relatively well-equipped to handle the emergency loss of their starting shortstop, or at least as well as any team could be. But it, it does take away a big chunk of what had been perceived as as breakout potential or upside potential for the lineup. Okay, so we can uh, we can try something a little bigger picture, I guess. The Twins did make the playoffs last season. Of course, they won 85 games. They were the fifth American League team to finish above 500 and therefore fifth American League team to make the playoffs. But the Twins, in a sense, they've They've been volatile the last few years, but by their underlying numbers, they've been somewhat similar. They've been a, a, a mediocre team, but they still seem to be young. They've taken advantage of the free agency market this winter. Where are the Twins? Just in terms of organizational development and their competitive window, clearly they are competitive because they were in the playoffs for three and a half hours. But how do they size up in an American League right now that has four teams that are extraordinarily good? that are above them. I think as odd as it's like a lot of it depends, I think on the rest of the league, like you said, they were kind of the wildcard team by default last year. Cause the angels kind of fell apart. The Royals fell apart. Nobody else was really in it. I, my sense is that the twins are maybe slightly better than they were last year. On the other hand, nobody expected them to be as good as they were last year. So I think, you know, 85 something wins somewhere in like the 83 to 88 range is I think realistic. And a lot of Minnesotans are, uh, I don't know, annoyed by that notion because they say, well, it was a young team. It won 85. Why would it not win 90 plus this year? But I think they were maybe in line to take a slight step back just because I think they got fortunate and everybody hit well in the second half last year. But they did have, I think, a really good offseason. They added a lot of pieces that nobody was even expecting, like Logan Morrison, Lance Lynn. So I think this is a legit playoff contender. I just, my, my fear is that the rest of the American League wildcard race is going to be a lot stronger than it was last year. Yeah, so the Twins were the first team ever to go from 100-plus losses to qualifying for the postseason in the very next season. So when any team has a a 26-win boost in a single season, you expect some sort of regression or the plexiglass principle. So they've obviously done a lot this winter to kind of counteract that, and we'll talk about what they did. But if you were to look at last year's team and say, well, here's where they overperformed or here's where something happened that was unsustainable, this isn't going to be as good as last year's team, where would you single out? I mean, as of like, I mean, they traded away their closer at the trade deadline. They were (laughs) at or below 500 until early August. And then everyone like, you know, the veteran guys like Maurer and Dozier, but then Buxton and Polanco, like we just mentioned, and, and Eddie Rosario. Everyone, except for basically Max Kepler, had a huge second half. They led, I think they led the majors in in second half run scoring, or at least August and September run scoring. So part of me wants to say, well, a lot of that was driven by young guys like Byron Buxton. So maybe it's just a sign that they're going to be an elite lineup going forward. But the sort of, uh, you know, logical side of my brain says, well, they're probably not going to lead the league in run scoring uh, for a big chunk of the season again. So I think that's a potential area where they could regress a little bit, but they did add Logan Morrison. And I definitely think that the pitching staff last year went from, you know, God awful to just sort of run of the mill bad or even mediocre. And I think they definitely have a lot more quality depth this year. They still lack in high end guys, but you know, they have, they have Lance Lynn and they have Jake Odorizzi who 
you know, hopefully should be a little bit better. And Kyle Gibson is now maybe their fourth or fifth starter instead of their second or third starter. So I think that the pitching will be slightly better and maybe the lineup will not take a huge leap forward, but they were a top five lineup overall last year too. So how long do you expect Fernando Rodney to be the closer this season? Well, every, it's it's strange because when they signed him, I thought, well, this is certainly a temporary thing. It's no more than one year. And then I looked into the numbers and he was he was horrible in April last year. And he's, you know, he's old and he's also put the fear of every fan base that he's pitched for for a long time now. But he was great from May 1st on to the to the rest of the regular season. And so I think the way they viewed it was, you know, he's got, quote unquote, closer experience. But I think they view it more as we can limit him to a very rigid role, which is pitching the ninth inning. And then we can use, you know, Addison Reed and Trevor Hildenberger and some other relievers in, in multi-inning roles to put out fires wherever. And so I don't know that they view Fernando Rodney as their best reliever, which they shouldn't, but I think they've almost flipped it where they think put him in the role where he gets clean ninth innings to pitch, hope he, do- he doesn't completely implode. And then you can use some of the better setup quality guys for bigger workloads. I don't have a ton of faith in Fernando Rodney, but then again, last year, I didn't have any faith in in Brandon Kinsler, and he made the All-Star team, and they traded him, and Twins fans freaked out that they traded Brandon Kinsler, of all people, at midseason. And then they handed the job to Matt Belial, and then he was even better than Brandon Kinsler. So I've, uh, I don't really know what to make of the closer role at this point for the Twins or for any team. So the Twins had a very active offseason. They signed some relievers, Zach Duke, Addison Reed. They added Michael Pineda. They added Fernando Rodney. They traded for Jake Odorizzi. Then they sort of profited from the collapse of the mid-tier free agent market, added Logan Morrison and Lance Lynn on on small deals toward the end of the offseason. And it looks like they will have the highest payroll in franchise history, I believe. So is there anything that you would have liked to see them do that they didn't do? Of course, they were in the market for you, Darvish, before that market got a little too rich for their tastes. And it sounds like they still have some payroll room, according to Derek Falvey, at least, if they want to add at midseason. So is there anything you would have liked to see them do? Is there anything you'd still like to see them do? I mean, I think the one spot, or at least the one role that they didn't really fill, is a, sort of a fourth outfielder right-handed hitter, maybe, I don't know, an, an Austin Jackson type uh, who could platoon a little bit with Kepler, with Rosario. Uh, they didn't really feel that. They kind of have Robbie Grossman in that role, except nobody actually wants to see him in the outfield playing defense. So that's the one spot they didn't really fill. On the other hand, nobody was really expecting them to sign a 35-homer DH, which they did in, in Logan Morrison. So that probably offsets that. But yeah, I, I mean, I, I think they ticked every box. It was a it was a really interesting offseason as a Twins fan because in years past, they would make you know one or two moves. They would sign, let's say, Fernando Rodney and then Zach Duke, and you would go, well, that's it for the offseason. But this offseason, they just kept making move after move after move. And yeah, like you said, I think they're right around $130 million for payroll, which doesn't seem like a lot unless you're from Minnesota, in which case it seems like a ton. But yeah, I, I think they pretty much addressed every every obvious hole or every obvious weakness. And I think they did it pretty well. All right, let's stop beating around the bush. In the first half last year, Byron Buxton had a 594 OPS. In the second half, he had a an 893 OPS. He was very clearly much, much better. He's already maybe the best base runner in baseball. He's already maybe the best defensive center fielder in baseball. Hit a lot in the second half, but still underneath that, even though in the first half, Buxton struck out 31% of the time. The second half, he struck out... 28% of the time in September, he struck out 32% of the time. The contact isn't really, hasn't been there. 
He found a way to be successful down the stretch anyway. Do you think that Byron Buxton, I guess it's not can he be a good hitter, but do you think that Byron Buxton will be an actual above average hitter for any meaningful length of time? Or is he just going to be this sort of constant tease because he is a little underpowered and he he just has not been able to put the bat on the ball consistently to this point? What uh, What more do you see? I think he will sort of always be a work in progress because his I don't know that his contact skills are ever going to be great, even though he's super fast and everyone wants him to be sort of a leadoff type of hitter. I don't think that's really ever going to happen. I do think he's going to be a good hitter. I mean, I feel like I've been driving that that Byron Buxton bandwagon for so long that I'm I'm trying not to take a victory lap too soon now that he was so good in the second half because I think that the jury is still sort of out, like you said. But I mean, I think he has. 20, 25 homer power. I don't think he's ever going to be a guy who has a great strikeout to walk ratio or even a great walk rate, but he's not really a free swinger. He just struggles at times to make consistent contact. So, you know, I don't think he's going to hit 300, but I think he could realistically hit, you know, 265, 270 with 20 plus homers with 30 or 40 steals. And and like you said, the I've never seen a better defensive center fielder. And I, you know, we watched uh, prime Tory Hunter for a lot of years for the twins. And I mean, the, the range he has combined with the just lack of caring about his own body to, to slam into walls and just die for everything is, is incredible. And it might end up getting him hurt, but I really think if he can be somewhere in between the guy who was horrible in the first half and the guy who was unbelievably good in the second half, he may not win any, any MVPs cause he's not going to have huge RBI totals or anything, but from a sabermetric standpoint, I think he has a chance to be a legit MVP candidate. Yeah. In the second half last year, he ranked 15th among all position players in Fangraphs war. And if you go by rate, because he played fewer games than all of the 14 guys ahead of him, if you go just minimum 50 games in the second half last year, The only guys who had a higher rate of war per plate appearance were Tommy Pham and Giancarlo Stanton, and we know what Stanton did in the second half last year. So he was already really good. If he could keep doing what he was doing, he would continue to be really good. And of course, he's exciting and fun, and we're all glad that he actually turned his season around after we all wrote our Byron Buxton breakout articles last spring and he made us look very silly for a while but in the long run it all worked out so on a less positive note i suppose where do things stand with miguel sano and his potential disciplining or not disciplining for the sexual assault allegations that surfaced over the offseason it has been uh it's been pretty quiet my understanding as of like a week and a half ago was that mlb had more or less wrapped up their part of the investigation. They had talked to Sano, they had talked to various people involved. Whether that means there's going to be an actual ruling between now and opening day, I have no idea. Obviously, the Twins would want that to happen. They've said publicly, like, we're we're fine going with whatever MLB determines, but we'd like to know before, you know, opening day so we can make plans on the field. There hasn't been really any statements from anybody involved one way or another other than, you know, we're we're abiding by whatever MLB comes up with. So, I don't have a sense of what's going to happen. He's been playing as if it's business as usual. He also has some on-field issues in that he's coming back from leg surgery and people were not happy that he put on some pounds in the offseason. People weren't happy with his physical condition even before that. So uh, it's definitely, it's a it's going to be a difficult year for him on the field. But to me, at least it, that sort of takes a backseat to the much, much bigger or much more important question of, 
of what's going to happen with his behavior off the field. But I, I don't have a sense other than my guess is that MLB will hand down something within the next week or 10 days, probably. So then having Eduardo Escobar sort of filling in at shortstop, presumably who becomes the next line of defense if Sano is suspended? Not that this is what's most important in the event that Sano does face discipline, but you know, from a roster standpoint, who, how do you, how do you patch holes where you have both your starting shortstop and third baseman missing? Cause if this is getting in, into Eric Ibar territory, then I just want to shut this podcast segment over. <laughs> yes. It is getting dangerously close to Eric Ibar territory. I mean, Escobar was the presumed third baseman. I mean, he played third base after Sano hurt his leg last year and he was pretty good. Uh, my sense is that the Twins don't really trust Escobar any longer. I think he's 29 or 30 years old as a shortstop. So if Polanco and Sano were both to be out for an extended time, I think you'd probably see Escobar as the primary third baseman and Ray Adrianza as the primary shortstop with maybe then a little bit of uh, Eric Ibar sprinkled in there, hopefully a very little bit uh, at both positions. Uh, I think Adrianza is a good shortstop defensively, and he hit better than he had before last year in a very limited sample. But, you know, Escobar as a starting third baseman is maybe not what you'd like long term, but I think he can do the job if needed for a couple months. And I think Adrianza can be at least passable at shortstop. But yeah, that would be a huge on-field blow to the Twins to lose, you know, an entire side of your infield not to mention two young guys that you were kind of hoping would have breakout years offensively too. Yeah, and I mentioned the shortstop depth earlier, and I think the Twins have three shortstops in Baseball America's top 100 at least. And looking at BP's organizational rankings, the Twins went from 22nd best system last year to 10th best system this year, which is pretty impressive considering that they also improved a lot at the major league level. It's tough to do both of those things at the same time. So assuming you weren't putting your finger on the scale with that ranking, how did they do that? How did they improve simultaneously at both the minor league and major league level? Well, like you said earlier, it helps to become the first team to go from, you know, 100 losses to the playoffs. They give you the first pick for that first thing. Uh, And they took Royce Lewis, who I think everybody likes quite a bit. I think he ended up, he's in the top 30, I believe, on BP's uh, top 101. And then, you know, just from a shortstop point of view, they also have Nick Gordon, who was a a top five pick uh, several years ago, who's at AAA. And there's a, you know, my Twitter mentions yesterday were full of people just saying, well, will they just hand the job to to Nick Gordon? But actually, about 10 minutes after they announced the uh, Jorge Polanco suspension, they reassigned Nick Gordon to minor league camp. So I like to think. D. Gordon will be yeah. very sad yeah, to hear I, that because he was tweeting I did too. see that. And I always wonder, like, <laughs> yeah. how much is he talking to his little brother? Or does Nick yeah. Gordon just kind of say, man, be, please be quiet. Don't get me in any trouble here. <laughs> uh, but yeah. yeah, I think if if for whatever reason Polanco is not able to jump back into the job in you know late June or, or early July when the suspension is over, the hope maybe would be that, that Nick Gordon would be having a productive season at AAA and could be an option there. But you know, the, the other shorts, you know, they have they have Royce Lewis, who's likely starting at either low A or, or high A this year. They have a, a shortstop prospect named Wander Javier, who's potentially even lower on the system, but tons of upside. But yeah, I think if if they were to hand over the shortstop job to a young younger player than Polanco, who's also, by the way, only 24, it would it would definitely be Nick Gordon. So just to uh, get right to the point with a podcast favorite here, we uh, 
we saw Williams Astor Dio in the news last week with his no-look pickoff that he's done before. Looking at the Twins' depth chart, of course, you have Jason Gatcher as a starting catcher, Mitch Garver behind him, who is seemingly a better catcher than I ever would have assumed from someone named Mitch Garver. But here we are. Is there any sort of avenue toward Williams Astor Dio making this the year that he reaches the major leagues? Yes, I would say uh, I'm perhaps higher than most on Mitch Garver, but he is hardly a sure thing even for a part-time role. And I think right now their third catcher is Bobby Wilson, who's a you know, waiver wire fodder, journeyman type. So if something were to happen to Jason Castro or Mitch Garver uh, struggles, sort of like he did in his call-up last year, uh, I think you could definitely see it happen. He's like you guys. I'm, I'm sort of fascinated by his, his skill set and just overall being. Uh, so I wouldn't mind seeing him. I would like Garver to succeed, but I also wouldn't mind seeing him at least in a, in a part-time role at some point. So the Twins have done a lot of things differently organizationally and on the field under the Falvey regime. The one thing they haven't done yet is raise their strikeout rate, which we've all been waiting for them to do forever. Their strikeout rate as a staff actually fell slightly last year, and they went from being the third lowest strikeout rate in baseball in 2016 to the second lowest in 2017, only ahead of the other team we'll be talking about on this episode, the Rangers. So what is the outlook for the Twins finally, one day, someday, (laughs) getting out of the basement when it comes to striking people out? Obviously, they are a better defensive team now, so it hurts them less to allow a lot of balls in play, but it's still good to miss bats, and the Twins have not done that to this point. Yeah, I would say even the pitching pickups for the major league team that I've liked or I've thought have been have been smart have not been big strikeout guys you know Lance Lynn is not a big strikeout guy Odorizzi is not a big strikeout guy I think they've sort of upped the overall velocity of the pitching staff a little bit but mostly Falvey has talked about that their pitching improvement long term is going to come through you know player development and changing the way they coach players and changing the way they handle pitchers throughout the organization. And so that's, you know, kind of a way of saying it might take three or four years. They do have, you know, some some prospects like Fernando Romero or Steven Gonsalves and a few relievers who are who are intriguing that will probably make it to the majors at some point. But yeah, this is not going to be a high strikeout pitching staff. It might be slightly uh, more able to get some swings and misses than the last few years, but it's it's still, if you were to look at this uh, depth chart on the pitching side and you didn't know they switched front offices, you could very easily be convinced that Terry Ryan and company were still running things. I do think it's a better pitching staff, but it is not considerably different in terms of skill sets. I was, uh, was going to mention, I was just looking at uh, twins.com, and of course right now there's some Question about what Phil Hughes' role is going to be. I guess that could be a separate question. I know they're looking to use Trevor May as a starter when he comes back from injury, but just looking at the 40-man roster overall, and right now it includes 42 players because Trevor May and Michael Pineda are both on the 60-day disabled list, but this is a 40-man roster with 42 players, and 27 of them are pitchers. I don't have an average for the entire league, but I assume that the average team doesn't have nearly twice as many pitchers as hitters, and so... Do you think that this reflects anything organizationally? Is this a fluke? But, you know, for example, I'm in charge of the Fangraphs Twins depth chart, and I'm trying to figure out exactly who's going to start, who's going to relieve, and there's just too many names. So in the sense, it's a blessing, I guess, that they have so many pitchers who are close to Major League ready, but is there 
a lesser depth on the position player side or just a lot more faith that the guys they have on the position player side can be stable and nearly everyday players? I think it's a little bit of both. It's on the position player side, so many of their guys are like Byron Buxton or like Eddie Rosario or Jorge Polanco, who are not only locked in as major league starters, but are young. And so they, I think, don't feel as though they need as much additional depth there for among hitters. But it's also, I mean, part of the, yeah, it is, it, it's, it's crazy how many pitchers they have on the 40-man roster. You're right. I think part of that is the leftover pieces from the previous regime that they actually like are involved. And they've also added a lot of not top prospects, but intriguing minor leaguers, uh, especially among relievers and fourth and fifth starter types that have been, had to be added to the 40 man roster. But I, I think, you know, just looking at their opening day pitching staff and the guys they have on the 40 man roster, this will definitely be a year where they cycle through a ton of guys, especially in the bullpen. And I think a lot of these guys will be kind of auditioning, not only for this year, but for maybe the next two or three years, because, you know, you can't continue to operate with, uh, you know, two thirds of your 40 man roster given to, to pitchers, particularly when so many of them are, are minor league relievers. But yeah, I think they kind of didn't worry about that so much as if we like this double AA or triple A reliever, let's just add him in a, in a low wattage trade. Uh, but yeah, they definitely have to sort through a lot of those guys. And you mentioned Phil Hughes, who's basically being handed, I think, the fifth starter job, uh, although Irvin Santana is supposed to be back probably in, in early May. So it's Hughes is basically auditioning to keep that job past six weeks, uh, and they could very easily cut bait on him. He's owed $26 million, but this is not the front office that signed him or re-signed him to those contracts. So I think he's probably an example of a guy who, uh, we'll start the season on the 40-man roster, but is hardly guaranteed to be there in, in June or July. Outfield corners question. I want to ask about both of those guys. Eddie Rosario is yet another twin who was really good in the second half. The offense as a whole was just about the best in baseball, certainly the best in the league in the second half. He's another reason why. And he's kind of maybe been overshadowed a bit by Buxton and Snow and maybe some of the higher ceiling prospects, but he had an excellent season. So curious to ask you how good you think he is or can be. And then on the other side of the outfield, you have Max Kepler, who was one of the few twins who didn't really take a step forward or break out last year. So is that potential still there? He is now 25. Rosario is 26. The Rosario breakout was was really interesting to me because he has been a guy for, for about two and a half years of his career, just swung at everything, just had abysmal plate discipline. And showed yeah. the, enough raw talent to hit, you know, 270 with some power, but just made a ton of outs and, and just some some god-awful plate appearances. And you could see his plate discipline kind of creeping toward mediocre. Uh, and, and James Rouse and the hitting coach talked constantly about how they were trying to hammer home to him that if you actually make the pitcher have to throw you pitches to get strikes, your natural ability can do some real damage. And we started to see that in the second half. I'm very skeptical that he can keep that up for a full season, let alone multiple seasons, just because I was scarred by having watched him swing at everything for, for the first couple of years of his career. But yeah, I mean, in terms of just natural hitting ability, he's among the the better guys in the organization. I just think it's a matter of, no, he's never going to walk, you know, 50, 60 times a year, but it's just a matter of actually getting hittable pitches to drive and he can do it. Kepler is a little bit the opposite. Kepler is very disciplined and is sort of uh, at the opposite end in terms of skill sets. I don't think he really has superstar or even star potential, but I think he can be a guy who is above average across the board, including defensively, including as a base runner. 
Uh, he's shown good power, but he just has not put together, I think, good stretches for more than a month or two at a time. It, it's, I think for a lot of teams, a guy like Kepler would be a young player that everyone focuses on and uh, a lot of attention paid to, you know, can he kind of be a building block for the lineup? But with the Twins, he's no higher than like third or fourth in line for young players that people are starting to dream about. Looking at the Twins, this is going back to the pitching staff because that's most of what the Twins have to talk about. But you look at the starting rotation and Santana's maybe considered the ace and he's going to be out the first month. Of course, it's Jose Barrios, who is the most electrifying guy. And, you know, Gibson, Odorizzi, Lynn, even Hughes when he's working, these are perfectly serviceable starting pitchers. But there's not a whole lot there that excites you necessarily. But I want to bring this back a little to... uh, to Trevor May. And the last we saw of Trevor May in 2016, he was a reliever. He was about an inning at a time reliever. And he had an ERA over five. So I'm not selling this well, but when May was pitching, he did strike out a third of all the hitters that he faced. And and the Twins have talked about they want to bring him back as a starting pitcher now that he is returning from Tommy John surgery. He's not going to make the opening day roster, but what do you think is driving this decision from the front office's standpoint? Is this that they think that maybe May didn't get a fair shot? Or do you think that they see something that maybe the previous regime didn't attempt with him? What is a, what is the reason for optimism here? Or is it just a matter of, let's see if this guy can get extended now that he's going to be healthy again? I think it might go back to what we were talking about, where if you look at, they just don't have a lot of high strikeout guys on this pitching staff especially starters and he's the one guy with Barrios I think who could who could potentially do that he was actually a very durable starter when they acquired him uh, from the Phillies as a prospect and he got some brief stints in the Twins rotation under the previous regime and wasn't great but did manage pretty good strikeout rate and threw harder than most of their other starters I think they're gonna end up just kind of saying look we'll just throw him in the bullpen again where he you know he was throwing 95 98 like you said getting plenty of strikeouts as a reliever it might be one of those weird cases where he's actually more durable as a starter than he is as a reliever because a lot of his injuries have been like back related and non arm related in general. But yeah, I, I, it'll be tempting to let him potentially start because I, I do think he has a chance to be like maybe a number three starter with a pretty good strikeout rate. But I also think it'll be tempting to just say we can get him back sooner. Uh, and you know, obviously, the more traditional route when somebody has durability issues is to just throw him in the bullpen. And you know, I think he has definitely has late inning potential in the bullpen and they by the time he's due back Fernando Romero and and Gonsalves and some of their other young prospects might be ready to jump into the rotation anyway so it might actually be easier for for him from a numbers point of view to just uh, slot back into the bullpen. Joe Maurer actually had a pretty good season. He improved uh, offensively and was at least an average first baseman overall maybe a bit better than that Defensively, his stats also improved. He led all full-time first baseman last season in UZR. His DRS numbers have been strong the last couple of seasons. You've watched him at first base more than I have. Has he really transformed himself into an excellent defensive first baseman? Are those stats reflecting reality? I think, yeah, I think he's really good at first base. I mean, when he was a gold glove winning, MVP winning catcher, there were so many people in Minnesota who were like, well, they're wasting his athleticism because he is thought of as like the greatest athlete in Minnesota sports history. He was, you know, number one quarterback out of high school. He was potential D1 uh, basketball player and then obviously the number one pick in baseball. And I think while it maybe took him a while to get used to first base, you definitely see the athleticism even, you know, at his age 
and given his injury issues, it shines through. And, you know, obviously his arm is 99th percentile for first baseman for whatever that's worth. He's gotten really good at, at scooping bounce throws over there. And he's also like remarkably good at just putting his head down and running into foul territory and making catches Willie May style over his shoulder. How much value that actually adds up to as a first baseman, I'm not quite sure. But yeah, he's he's definitely above well above average defensively. And and like you said, he was he was damn good after he had a rough April and then kind of looked like his old catcher self. Uh hit like three, I think three fifteen or three twenty after May uh first, had a ton of walks, not much power, but you know, a eight something OPS. And I think the the hope is that the further he gets away from the concussion that kind of derailed his career and forced him out from from behind the plate, the more he can be like the type of hitter he was. But then, of course, you're running into just normal aging at that point because I think he's I, I believe this is going to be his age 35 season. So it's it's kind of a a tough needle to thread there because it's you're further away from the concussion and potentially your reflexes and everything are better, but you're also just 35 at which point you shouldn't be counted on to have great seasons anyway. But yeah, I think he's key for them because he's one of the few guys, the lineup has plenty of power and plenty of upside, but it doesn't have a ton of guys right now that can be counted on to work long counts and get on base. And if he bats second or third in the lineup, he's going to be key to getting on base for, for some of the young power hitters. So Brian Dozier has been sort of the other somewhat undersized superstar second baseman. He's not quite as undersized as the main superstar second baseman in baseball, but in any case, Dozier has been outstanding for four, maybe five years in a row. He's had some incredible second halves. He's beloved. And in Minnesota, he's just one of the baseball's greatest cases of being an overachiever in that he was never considered all that much coming up through the system. But at the same time, Dozier now is heading into his age 31 season and maybe more importantly, his final season of team control with the Twins. So is there a sense of bracing for for loss of course there's been talk of trying to negotiate an extension but we would be looking at a middle infielder entering his uh his early 30s so do you think that beyond 2018 there's going to be a future for brian dozier in minnesota i don't i mean he's sort of said as much the past few weeks and he seems open to at least talking about an extension uh but it sounds like the twins haven't really even approached it with his agent and I don't know that I can blame him. Like you said, he's been great on and off the field. I've never been more wrong about a prospect than Brian Dozier. I was very convinced that he was a utility type of guy at most, even to the point that he was in the majors. I was still convinced that. And he's been, I think he's probably been a top five second baseman overall in baseball over the past, let's say, three or four years. Uh, but he's also, any extension would take him into his mid-30s. And I also wonder just, after this free agent market and particularly I looked back at all the free agent second baseman signings and I, I, I believe Robinson Cano is the only free agent second baseman potentially ever to get more than I think $60 million in any contract. So I would be shocked if the twins offer that type of deal to Brian Dozier. I think the easiest path for them is to make the qualifying offer to him if he wants to come back next year for you know one year, 18 million or so, that's fine. If not, they can get a draft pick when he signs elsewhere and slide, whether it's Polanco or Nick Gordon, or maybe they think Royce Lewis is relatively close to the majors. By that point, they're they're well equipped to replace him, at least you know, in terms of a guy who can be a solid second baseman. They're never gonna be able to replace him with, you know, another thirty five homer threat at that position. But yeah, I I would be surprised if they they signed him longer term. I think, you know, Maurer is also an impending free agent. I think there's much more chance 
of Maurer coming back just because he might be more open to a one-year deal for you know six or eight million or something like that. Paul Molitor was reputed to be on the wobbly chair last season, which was not surprising considering that he was a holdover from the previous regime and also coming off an unsuccessful season. Well, it turns out that surprisingly making the playoffs and improving your team by 26 wins is good for manager's job security. He signed a three-year extension last October. So did he win over everyone? Did he impress the new front office? Did he impress you and Twins fans? Did he improve as a manager? Should he get a lot of credit for their success last season? Or is it just sort of, well, we won and he was around, so he didn't prevent us from winning and he knows all these young players and they know him, so we could do a lot worse? Or, you know, has he improved the way that a lot of the young Twins players have improved? I think he's improved somewhat. And I do think his job was very much in jeopardy as of, you know, the trade deadline, roughly. But yeah, like you said, if you have one of the biggest improvements in American League history year over year, it's very difficult to just fire that guy or let that guy go. And, you know, Derek Falvey and and Thad Levine have talked a lot about how they enjoy working with him and how he's very open-minded to any ideas they bring toward him. And Paul Molitor said all the right things back toward them. I don't think he's the the greatest in-game manager. You know, some of the same lineup and bullpen and pinch running moves and stuff are remind me a little more of Ron Gardenhire than I had hoped uh, because mm-hmm. Molitor was billed at the time he took over for Gardenhire as this new school, open to analytics, uh, all this stuff. And I think that's been sort of uh, wishful thinking. It hasn't actually been borne out. But on the other hand, he seems to have a, a very good relationship with all the the young players, there's there's never been an issue, so far at least, or at least a prominent one, of any kind of revolt in the clubhouse against him. He he said all the right things when they traded away their uh, closer at the trade deadline and said, I don't like it, but you know that's where they think they have to be. So uh, I think he's been a good soldier. He's well-liked by the players. And I, I, I don't think by any means he's been horrible in terms of in-game moves, but I think he was billed as a little bit more uh, analytics savvy or new school than he actually is. So we always end by asking for a win total prediction. You sort of gave us a range earlier in this interview, but can you pin it down to one number? Not that uh, that precision actually means anything. Well, I was going to say officially 88, but I'm going to knock it down by one win just because the Jorge Polanco uh, buzzkill. So I'll say 87 wins, a slight improvement uh, over last year, and enough to at least be in the wildcard race till till the last weekend. All right. And of course, people know about Baseball Prospectus 2018. I have my copy. Hopefully everyone listening has their copies. But quick plug for your new book, which is coming out next month and is very relevant to Twins fans. Yeah, my new book is called The Big 50 Minnesota Twins. It's basically I ranked uh, the top 50 players in Minnesota Twins history. Uh, and then wrote an essay about each player, and there's all kinds of you know n- n- nice looking color pictures and stats and stuff. So I think if you're a Twins fan and you uh, enjoyed us babbling just now about the Twins, uh, I think you will like it because it's uh, a lot of opinion, a lot of stat analysis, but also a lot of digging into uh, some actual you know newspaper reports of the time and quotes of the time. So it was fun to write, and I'm uh, I'm excited for Twins fans to read it, and I'm excited that the current team is actually good. And people are actually excited about baseball in Minnesota again right now. Do you feel a little silly ranking Jorge Polanco at number four? Yeah. Uh, maybe for, <laughs> they tell me for the second printing, we can maybe remove him. From that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. April 15th is the official release date. The Big 50. You can pre-order it now. By the way, Jeff, you mentioned Twins.com earlier. Not actually the Twins website. I wrote about that once. <laughs> <The> twins. <laughs> yeah, twins. I remember com. that. 
Coons.com <laughs> still says change is coming soon. It is still owned by two twins <laughs> named Derlin and Darvin Miller. So one thing about the twins has not changed. Well, that and the strikeout rate. All right. Thanks, Aaron. You can read him, of course, at Baseball Prospectus and find him on Twitter at Aaron Gleeman and hear him on the Gleeman and Geek podcast or on KFAN. Thank you, as always. Thank you, guys. See you. April 15th is good. You can It's tax refund money. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, it's, I, it's very strange to be like, I kept saying, well, don't we want it by opening day? But apparently this type of book, they just sell it for Father's Day because people need very easy, <laughs> non-thoughtful gifts for their fathers and grandfathers. So I, yes. I said, all right, that's fine, whatever. So if you have a father and you like your father and you want to give your father a gift, but you don't want to think too hard about yes. it, give him the big fit. That is my, that is my demo. <laughs> All right, so we will take a very quick break and we'll be right back with Levi Weaver to talk about the Texas Rangers. I need to hear you say my name. I need to hear it from your chest. I need it pounding on the drums where all these demons try to rest. I need to hear you say my name. I need to hear it from your chest. All right, well, it has been a few days since we talked to anyone who worked for The Athletic, so we're breaking that streak now. Having another athletic writer on, in this case, Levi Weaver, who writes for The Athletic DFW and covers the Texas Rangers. Hey, Levi, how are you? Hello, I'm good. I was just saying, Jeff and I were quickly reviewing the list of Texas Rangers offseason transactions, and we crammed it in in about 30 seconds before we called you. It's not very long. It is mostly no. starting pitchers who were good in 2011 or so. I guess we could start <laughs> with the rotation because that's been where much of the activity and much of the intrigue this spring was. And most recently, we learned that Martin Perez who hurt his elbow in a bull accident over the offseason, killed and ate the bull. So he is back. The bull is not. And uh, he was actually good down the stretch last season. So I'm curious to hear how real you think that was. But really, there's just a lot of uncertainty here. There's Matt Moore. There's Doug Fister. There's Mike Miner. There's Cole Hamels, who was not really his usual excellent self last year. And then there's a whole lot of depth and Bartol Colon and Nedson Volquez. And the list goes on of guys that, With two <laughs> yeah, you, you just didn't know these guys were on the Texas Rangers, but they are sort of, or they have been this spring. So how is this rotation going to shake out? And is there any way it shakes out well? As goes the rotation, so goes the team, I think, and especially this year with the Rangers. You're you're exactly right that it's all a bunch of, I think the best summary I've seen is just a bunch of guys standing in a circle, shrugging at each other like, ah, I don't know. How's this going to work? Um, Cole Hamels is, he's a, yeah, you're right. He wasn't as good last year as usual, and he's 34, and but he is also a professional and has the skins on the wall that if, if somebody's going to come back and be all right at 34, I don't feel like Cole Hamels is a bad bet for, for somebody who could be that guy. He's apparently started throwing a slider this spring. So we'll see how adding that to the, to the repertoire helps. If it helps, I think Perez is, is for real. His problem I think has not been so much with stuff. He's always had good stuff. It could change up and it gets a lot of ground balls, but his, his problem has been mentally kind of short circuiting if something goes wrong. And so he, be out on the mound and just mowing down guys. And then here comes the fourth inning or something. And the, there's an error committed behind him. 
and maybe he walks the next two guys and gives up a double and a triple and then and then for the rest of the game he's fine like he gets it out of his system and he's great for the rest of the game so we've seen some signs in spring that maybe that's not going to be the case anymore the the team committed two errors behind him yesterday and he managed just fine and didn't didn't mess with them at all and he said after the game that he thinks he's getting more mature every year so we'll we'll see how that translates when he gets into the bigger stadium with more people and um yeah i think there's there's cause for optimism there and then the rest of the guys i, I don't know man <laughs> <laughs> i feel like i've I, I'm around the team every day and I pay attention and my answer is still just like, I don't know, man. <laughs> Matt Moore says he's throwing his putter less and he feels more confident about it, saying that his velocity is ticked back up as a result. Um, Mike Miner has had a pretty strong spring and he has been good in the past, but how do you mitigate coming back from two years in the bullpen? Or no, sorry, years out and then a year in the bullpen. How do you mitigate that innings increase? I don't know. And then, yeah, it's how, how many more years does Doug Fister have left? Last year, it looked like his career was over, and then he kind of figured things out in Boston. He said he moved back towards the fr- first base side of the mound and kind of went back mechanically to some things that he did early in his career that gave him some success. And he was good in Boston. So, yeah, if everything falls exactly in the right place, I think the Rangers could contend for the wild card. I've kind of said all along, anywhere between 90 wins and 90 losses, I'm not going to be in the slightest bit surprised. I was going to ask you a Mike Miner specific question, but I feel like we already know the answer. It was going to be a, a verbal okay. shrug, about 25 seconds of you shrugging at us <laughs> on the mm-hmm. podcast. So instead, I'll just I'll give you a, a different shrug question. Uh, Rugged Odor okay. is up to the uh, to the majors mm-hmm. at a very young age, and Odor was interesting because he he struggled, went to the minors, came back. He was really good, and it seemed like he sort of had his his turnaround and his his emergence, but he was only. 21 years old, so everything was happening way too fast with Rudin Odor. It seems like he's right. been at the center of a lot of stories for someone who's still younger than many top prospects. But anyway, Rangers signed it to a long-term extension. He was always sort of one of the more, let's say, extreme players in baseball and mm-hmm. in uh, in profile and personality. And last year, despite hitting 30 home runs, he was, I don't know, what's the word? Terrible? <laughs> he was a terrible Historically bad, player. I think <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I mean, we're looking at 30 home runs and a WRC plus of 61. <laughs> I mean, that's it's insane. unfathomable. <laughs> so, I mean, you already know where this question is going, but what? it's not so much about what happened, but do the Rangers see Odor any differently now than they did a year ago? Because, I mean, like you said, that, that was a historic underperformance. Yeah, well, what they tell us is, is that they that they're fine with him? They're committed to him at second base. That they think it was a blip in the radar, and and if they're saying something else behind closed doors, you know we're not hearing it. I did a a little bit of a study recently about other players who had had at the age of 24 or younger, um, 150 or more strikeouts. I think it was fewer than 40 walks, and I'm trying to remember now what the qualifiers were. But basically, there's about six guys in history that had a season like Rubnet Odor at that young age. And um, none of them flamed out. Like they all played a little bit, at least a little bit longer. And one of them was Juan Samuel, who played for 15 years and was an all-star a few times. And he was also a not great defensive second baseman. Odor doesn't have Samuel's speed, but he's got a lot more pop. And I think if we want to profile a, yeah, that would be okay scenario for Rubnet Odor, Juan Samuel is not a bad comparison. One of the other ones was Sammy Sosa. He's not not going to be Sammy Sosa, unfortunately, for the Rangers. But uh, I, but I do think just being out there as many days of the year as he was, he played 162 games last year, being on a baseball field and being under the coaching for that amount of time and having 
that experience in the big leagues. I think there's cause to believe that that is a good thing. I, I don't know. Uh, Jeff Bannister said this year that he and Odor have taken a different approach with hitting coaches of uh, one, you know, looking for one pitch in one zone, trying to swing only at your pitch, identify your pitch and ignore the rest. And Odor, to his end, said, uh, I'm not changing anything whatsoever. <laughs> so um, <laughs> part of that might just be that Rugnet Odor is an incredibly stubborn individual and doesn't really feel compelled to tell the press what he's working on or i mean he's nice to us don't get me wrong like he's not a jerk but he just is not necessarily forthcoming about like his swing mechanics and what exact pitch he is looking for what his zone is so we'll see if uh if he can be more selective then i think there's uh, he could be a he, he has the tools to be a good major league player for a long time he's still just 24 years old if he gets too stubborn and continues to swing at every curveball that tries to hit him in the feet, then it's not going to go well for him. But yeah, you're right. I, I, I finished the end of the question just by shrugging and going. Right. <laughs> well, there's probably some percentage of people listening right now that maybe doesn't root for the Rangers and is primarily interested in hearing about the fate of Bartolo Colon and whether Bartolo Colon will be in the big leagues, specifically with the Texas Rangers. What are the odds of that right now? I think Martin Perez's outing yesterday probably put Bartolo's chances in a little bit more peril because I think maybe he was the safety option if Perez was not ready for opening day. With it now looking like he will be, it kind of depends on maybe Jesse Chavez, who is also at a pretty strong spring. I think we're probably down to Chavez or Colon. I have my preference. I would love to cover a baseball team that has Adrian Beltre, <laughs> Tim Lincecum, and Bartolo Colon all on the same team. It's great. Everybody will read my stories. But... <laughs> But uh, I kind of think maybe Chavez has the inside track to do his versatility this year. In the bullpen, you have uh, mm-hmm. you, there are uh, there's a lot of strikeouts there. You can see Keone Kella has had a lot of strikeouts before mm-hmm. Jake Diekman, a lot of strikeouts. Tim Lincecum, if you go further back, a lot of strikeouts. Matt Bush, a lot sure. of strikeouts. Now that he's back in the bullpen. Jose Leclerc last year, a lot of strikeouts, a lot of walks, but a lot of strikeouts. And mm-hmm. standing at the tippy top is is the contact and extreme ground baller Alex Claudio. Last year he was a uh, mm-hmm. served as a closer, I would think that this year it's probably going to open as the closer again and try to fend off all competition. So how much of Claudio's success do you think is, is because of Claudio and how much of it is just maybe because of he gives such a different look from not only everyone else in the bullpen, but almost everyone else who relieves in in the majors. He is an unusual pitcher profile, but he he's certainly been no, nothing less than effective so far. Yeah, I... I enjoy watching him pitch changeups specifically that sometimes dip below 70 miles an hour and just making the best hitters in baseball look really silly. And it's fun because he's not, I did a video for the Rangers for their award ceremony. He was their pitcher of the year last year. And one of the questions they asked was if, if Alex Claudio was a superhero, what, you know, what would his superhero name be? And I thought about it for a second. I'm like, he's just the guy. Like he just, like if he, if he was in a superhero movie and he walked in, you would think, okay, well, this guy's about to die. And then you <laughs> sort of close your eyes and then you open and you look up and he's just standing there and all the bad guys are dead. And he's just looking around like, what? I thought I was supposed to kill all the bad guys. Like, that's what I was supposed <laughs> to do, right? And that's just kind of how he goes about it. He's, he's this quiet, very soft-spoken individual at his locker after the games. And he's just like, I'm very humbled to be here and thank God that I even get to be in the big leagues. And then he goes out, throws the ball a maximum of 87 miles an hour and just gets guys out. And I, it has to be, like you said, it has to be because the delivery is so funky and he just sort of wobbles into the set position and his arm looks like a 
some sort of bullwhip rubber band combination. And then the ball just sort of sneaks up on you. And, and um, some of the hitters that I've talked to, I just they said, yeah, it's, it's hard to see. You don't really see a whole lot. And then it, it looks faster than it is just because his, his delivery is weird. So I don't know. I don't know if he'll be the closer. I think there are a lot of options for sure. And he's, I do think one thing that, that Jeff Bannister values about Claudio is his versatility. So he can kind of, because he doesn't throw the ball that hard, he can come out and give you three innings some night. And he can, last year, Cole Hamels went down at the very last minute with, a, with an injury and it was Alex Claudio that started again. There might be more value if they can find somebody else that fits the closer role, there might be more value for Claudio uh, as a sort of, I don't know, I don't want to say Andrew Miller because it's the pitches are so different, but as far as versatility goes, kind of maybe the Andrew Miller type in the bullpen. Mm-hmm. So Jeff and I were talking earlier in this episode about service time manipulation and minor leaguers starting the season in the minors. Mm-hmm. Willie Calhoun is a guy who has brought that discussion up again recently. He will start the season in the minors. He is someone who tore up the minors last year. He had a 927 OPS mm-hmm. in AAA. Granted, Pacific Coast League, but still, he hit lots of dingers and was good. So he'll be playing left field, presumably, for the Rangers sometime very soon. Is this purely service time related? Was there any other justification or legitimate justification for him not starting on the opening day roster? You know, that was my first reaction, was that it was service time manipulation. But I started to look at the history of the Rangers front office, and they they don't have a history of doing that. And they are generally pretty fair to guys when they're ready to come to the big leagues, they bring them up to the big leagues, even if that means that it sort of works against the Rangers in a, in a service time conversation. So given that I started to just call the scouts that I know like, Hey, so Willie Calhoun's defense, is it really bad enough to keep him in AAA to start the season? And it wasn't unanimous, but most of them were like, Oh yeah, it's, brutal like he he still has to get better he has to get better if he's going to play and i mean calhoun is he's motivated by hearing that and he is he's said that he's just sick of hearing about his defense all the time and like basically i'm working on a man just let me work on it and so the motivation is there I, i don't know if the physical tools are there to be an outfielder and maybe it just you know maybe he languishes until the dh position opens up and he just comes and is a dh for 10 or 15 years in the big leagues. I don't know. So yeah, I mean, there's the, just the math behind it. Sure. There's cause for suspicion about service time manipulation, but it just seems looking at the Rangers track record, it, it doesn't seem like that's something that, that they've done a whole lot of in the past. Calhoun, you, you mentioned the Rangers don't have the history of the service time manipulation. And a couple of seasons ago, the Rangers had Nomar Mazzara on the opening day roster. He was very young. He was a good prospect. He by all rights, any other team could have sent him down to the minors and they would have had that extra year. But in any case, Mazzara's come up and he, from the outside, at least from the statistical perspective, Mazzara hasn't been bad, but he hasn't developed. He had a very similar sophomore campaign to his uh, his freshman campaign, but he's going into his age 23 season. And he, when he's been at his best, he's had some monstrous home runs, upper tank. He's got skills to play in the outfield. Seems very good. Seems like it should be very good, but he just hasn't gotten there yet. Still so young. Do you what kind of development do you see for Mazzara in 2018? Not to assume that there necessarily will be development, but if we're just going to figure he follows follows a more familiar aging curve, what do you what do you see out of Mazzara moving forward? Because he's so young, and the history suggests someone who's up in the majors at such a young age is going to be very good. Yeah, he's he's hard for me to gauge, and I'm not a great evaluator. I'm not a scout, so I I struggle sometimes with questions like this because I, I kind of know what I 
can see, and then I can look at the stats, and that's about all I've got. I think maybe his power was a little overrated, maybe? It doesn't seem like he's got... He, You're right, he had some very massive home runs, but I, he just doesn't seem to me to have like that power stroke and maybe it's just that he needs to hit better off of left-handed pitchers, too. I mean, he hit significantly better off of right-handers than, than left-handers last year. I think Mazar is going to have a good hit tool forever. It seems like he puts reasonable contact on the ball. And he has a, a nose for and I know we scoff at the RBI stat, but when there's runners on base, Mazar is pretty consistent about getting them in. And there's value to that. He's just gotten into some really, really terrible slumps uh, that I've seen over the last two years where, where he'll have just a week, two weeks, three weeks at a time where he just can't seem to get on base at all. And and I don't know. Is it that he needs to hit left-handers better? Yes. Is it that he needs to avoid slumps? I mean, it's easy to say, but I don't know how to... Like, I didn't see anything from watching video that I can point at no more and go, you know, when you're slumping, it's because your left shoulder is doing this weird thing. Like, I I don't know. I, I don't know why he slumps and why he gets hot. But, but um, yeah, maybe just some more consistency, which is an odd thing for somebody whose nickname is The Big Chill, and he's like the most level-headed dude on the team consistency is not uh, a word I would have thought I would use in how can Nomar Mazar improve, but just, yeah, just avoid those slumps, man. <laughs> That's easy to say. Yeah. <laughs> so Jerkson Profire will be on the bench, will be on this roster. He's someone who obviously has had ups and downs, mostly downs injury related and also just sort of getting squeezed out. He was not even called up last September when rosters expanded, right? Because supposedly there just weren't Mm -hmm. enough plate appearances to go around and yet here he is. He was assumed to be a likely trade candidate was not traded. Is this sort of an opportunity to try to rebuild his value a bit and then deal him? Like, is the relationship between him and this organization just sort of past the expiration date and it's it's going to end one way or another sometime soon? Or is there still some chance that he might rehabilitate his future with the Rangers? If you had asked me in November, I would have said that I thought the relationship was irreparable. Watching him in spring training, he... And he worked, it's obvious that he worked very hard in the off season. He's in better shape. He is, you know, bouncing around the clubhouse. He's, he seems happy. I think this season ends one of three ways for him. I think either he builds some value uh, to the point that the Rangers are able to get something in return for him and allow him to go be a full-time infielder somewhere else. I think one of the other options is if Rubnetador continues to struggle this year, like he did last year, I don't think it'll be a quick hook, but if it's the all-star break and he's still hitting, you know, 190, maybe maybe there's a change at second base there and Profar gets his day. Or things go really poorly for the Rangers and, you know, Adrian Beltre is traded somewhere and, I mean, even Elvis Elvis Andrews could fetch a pretty decent return, I would think, at the, at the deadline this year if that's the way that it went. Then you got a couple of infield positions open that uh, Profar could finally step into and, and you know, have his, his big shot to be the, the guy in Texas. So I don't think that the relationship is irreparably damaged. I think he I think he knows though that this year is it's going to be important for him to perform well so that one of those good options can happen for him. Because if he comes out and doesn't perform well and he just kinda gets stuck on the end of the bench, then who even knows what twenty nineteen looks like for him. So yeah, he, he knows that he needs to perform well and, and I think that his attitude, I think his head is in the right place. So hopefully it goes well for the kid. It's he he's had a pretty terrible string of bad luck with the injuries and just with people leapfrogging him into into positions while he was injured it's it's been rough i know that the the 
player in the Rangers bullpen everyone wants to hear about is Tim Lenscombe. There's probably going to be a Tim Lenscombe question in this podcast, but the player that I'm almost equally interested in in that of the Rangers bullpen is Chris Martin, who the Rangers brought over from uh, from Japan. And in Japan, he was one of the most dominant relievers that was in either league. Last season, he was second only to Dennis Sarfate and strikeout minus walk rate. And Sarfate seems like one of the most dominant relievers in the world. So Chris Martin's coming back. He's pitched in the majors before. He's been good in AAA, a little less good in the majors, but the stuff seems like it's all there. And I don't know. The Rangers have such a fluid bullpen. It seems like almost anyone could occupy almost any role. But basically, what have you seen from Martin this spring? How excited are the Rangers to have him? Well, I just went home for a few days, so I missed his bad outing. But every outing before then was really good. And one of the things that I am most intrigued about is Martin told us. So for those that don't know his story, he grew up in Arlington. He's from the area. And there was a time that he was in he was an independent ball, and he was like working at a a furniture warehouse not too terribly far from the ballpark and Pete Incavilia that used to play for the Rangers the the rotund left fielder he was managing the Grand Prairie Air Hogs and Chris Martin got a job there and that was sort of what brought him back into into baseball but when he was in Japan not only did he only walk 13 guys in two whole seasons like 87 88 innings he walked 13 total he had an ERA of I think it was 107 the first year and 114 the second year. I mean, he just was pretty dominant over there. But part of it was that he learned from his teammate Shohei Otani how to throw the splitter, which I guess is now going to be a very effective pitch for him uh, that he didn't have before. So, yeah, I'm really excited. And I'm, I'm always a sucker for these stories like Tony Barnett, who made his big league debut with the Rangers in 2016 after going over to Japan and kind of figuring things out. And Austin Bibbins Dirks, who pitched for you know, 12 years in the minor leagues and 20-odd teams between the minor leagues and the ball and Venezuela and then finally made his big league debut. It won't be a debut for Martin, but I am excited to see if he can be the sort of hometown kid that has this circuitous Iliad of uh, or odyssey of going to, to uh, independent ball in Japan and finally kind of discovering himself. So from a storyline standpoint, it's a great story. But from a baseball standpoint, he could legitimately be a very big contributor to the bullpen this year. Joey Gallo obviously has been a figure of much fascination for years now. He showed last year that his approach can work. It is unorthodox in every possible way, but he was very valuable, very good hitter last year, despite striking out 37% of the time. He also hit 41 homers and walked a whole lot. So if you had to guess, I mean, do you think Gallo is someone who will evolve significantly in certain ways over the course of his career? He's still only 24. Should we just pencil in basically his 2017 stat line for the next decade? Or does he have holes that are going to be exploited? Or can he close the holes he already has? Will he be someone who just kind of changes from year to year? Or is that just Gallo for the foreseeable future? The cool thing about Gallo is that he used to have a massive hole in his swing in the upper inside part of the strike zone. And part of it is just he's got logs for arms, and so it's hard to squish him up <laughs> enough to hit the ball in the upper inside quadrant. Uh, and he's gotten better at that. He kind of had a a pattern, which is not an unusual pattern, I guess. He would move up a level in the minor leagues, and he would struggle mightily. And then the next go-around, he would figure it out and just start punishing pitchers. And that's kind of what happened in the big leagues. You know, he had an, an okay 15. Like, he had a few 
games. He came up and started just hitting a million home runs, and then everybody realized just throw it up and in, and, and you'll get him out. 2016 was terrible. He hit 041 in his short amount of time in the big leagues. So I think maybe a lot of that um, adjustment period is is past, and I think we can kind of rely on what he was in 17 to be the, maybe the floor moving forward. But he's talked a lot this offseason. He, he signed with uh, with Boris, and Boris has helped him with some coaches and some training in the offseason too. And he said what he's really working on is he knows when he hits the ball, it's going to go a long way. And he's not changing that. He's going to continue to swing hard. But also maybe adjust slightly on his two-strike approach and occasionally get that opposite field you know, double to the gap or a, a single through the hole on the left side with two strikes. So, yeah, if, if he adds that to his game and all of a sudden you've got Joey Gallo hitting like 260, 270 with all of the extra walks and with all the home runs, that's, I mean, if Joey Gallo hits 270, he's a borderline MVP candidate just because his OPS is going to be through the roof. Mm-hmm. So I think there's there's something to dream on there. But even if the adjustments don't work, even if he just is what he was in 2017, that's cool. Do I need to say anything besides Tim Lincecum's question? Like, does, does that function as the no, question? No, that's it's, fine. Yeah. <laughs> great. Question. Tim, yeah, Tim Lincecum answer. I, I haven't gotten to talk to him a whole lot, like I said before. I, I left for about 10 days. So I was here his first day in camp when he talked to the to the press. And he's one of those players that I kind of always wanted to cover. He just seems like he exists just fine outside of the baseball plane. And those are the kind of players that make it tolerable to cover a team for you know, every day for however many months the baseball season is. His brother passed away the week before he signed with the Rangers. And so his arrival in camp was a little bit delayed. He may not be ready for opening day. We'll see. It will be interesting to see a couple of things with Lincecum. One is, did his time at driveline work? I mean, the the photos aren't lying. He's in great shape. And did that do enough to strengthen his hips? Because that was part of the thing that ended his career in San Francisco was he had the degenerative hip condition. So are his hips strong enough? By all accounts, it seems like his fastball is, you know, when he was with Anaheim, it was down to 88, maybe 89. His fastball is back up to 93, 94, maybe. Is that going to be enough to make him effective if he can just go out and pitch for one inning at a time? That will be interesting to see from a baseball standpoint. And then, you know, just on a, a, a personal standpoint, the way that grief affects people differently and it's you know the psychologists will tell you it's usually about a year of just your brain is just weird for a year when you go through a massive personal tragedy and i think the death of a brother that you're close to certainly qualifies as such so it'll be um i don't know interesting seems like a almost a predatory word to use but it's something that i'm gonna uh, that i'll be on the lookout for to, to just see if he how he's holding up and the ability to do the job in the face of uh, a, a pretty awful tragedy in his life and you see, you see athletes deal with that. I think one of two ways, in my experience, sometimes it is too much, and they're they're just distracted. And then sometimes being on the field is a nice distraction from that, and it allows them to just focus and be in that moment. So, um, so we'll see how how Tim deals with it. It's obviously um, not what you want coming back to the sport, you know, right on the heels of that. But um, but yeah, we'll see. Did I just make everybody sad? With that? And then like <laughs> yeah, blankly at our a little bit, but I will make everyone happier now. Adrian Beltre, we would be remiss if we yeah. did not ask an Adrian Beltre question. So he was wearing suspenders at third base for some reason this week. It's just Adrian Beltre. I just saw it and thought, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So. He was yep. as great as ever when he was on the field last season, obviously was injured for large chunks of the season. 
He has one year left on his contract. He has said in the past that he doesn't really want to be part of another rebuilding effort at his advanced age. So, I mean, it all depends, I suppose, on how he plays this season. If he suddenly experiences some huge decline, maybe people start talking about retirement. If he continues to be as great as he's been every year for the last many, many years, then he'll want to play somewhere. So will it be here? Has there been any talk about trying to extend him or the prospect of re-signing him? Or how do you think it all plays out? I haven't heard any talk about an extension. I, I think everybody knows that if, if the team is, he, he likes it here. He likes where he is and he likes his teammates and he's, he's comfortable in Texas. But that is superseded by his desire to win. So if it looks like the team has a shot at a wild card spot and they're, you know, things are going well and the rotation is living their best life, there's a shot that I think he would be fine to stay here and, and try to go for it. If things are falling apart, though, yeah, I could absolutely see him asking to be traded somewhere where he just has a chance to, to win because he's going to be 39 this year. And and you're right, like he's, he doesn't have a whole lot of time left to do that. And that's the one feather in his cap that he is, has eluded him thus far. And so I don't know where it would be. I mean, the Yankees seem like I think the team respects Beltre enough. And and also knows that they're not going to get a ton in return for half a season of a 39-year-old, no matter how good the 39-year-old third baseman is. You might see Adrian Beltre get traded for a song just almost as a thank you for all of you that you've done here. We want to give you the best shot to win. If the best team will take you, we'll just send you there and we'll we'll take what we get. So there's a lot of mutual respect, I think, between the organization and between Adrian Beltre. And obviously, best case scenario would be that he gets to try to chase that here. But, but if that looks like it's not going to happen, unfortunately for Rangers fans, I think they will have to maybe temporarily become fans of another team for half a season. So as this winds down, the Rangers are coming off a below 500 season. They project to be kind of a, a similar baseball team. Then you look at the best players on the roster right now, at least by projected wins above replacement. You've got Adrian Beltre, you just talked about. You've got Cole Hamels, who's getting older and seemingly not a whole lot better. You, there are questions about Rudnett Odor, questions about Nomar Mazzara. We don't even know how Willie Calhoun's going to play defense, but Rangers farm system is, it's not terrible, but it's its not one of the best ones in baseball. They just had a, a UCL case break the, in the news the other day. So one of their best pitching prospects is probably going to need Tommy John surgery. So the long and short of it is where where are the Rangers, if they fit any sort of classic role, where are they? Because they're not rebuilding. They're not aiming away from contention. They clearly were somewhat active in the pitching market going for some, I guess, reclamation projects. But they're, they're trying to win in 2018 and they, they don't look bad but it seems like they're sort of in the middle so are they transitioning away from contention or are they just trying to deal with it on a daily basis and just trying to hold it together until hopefully some younger players step up i think if adrian beltre were not a texas ranger i think they probably would have gone into a more full rebuild mode i think for his sake they wanted to at least put forth you know they had to do it frugally but put forth enough of an effort to say like we we could contend with this team. They do have a pretty good young core of guys, like people we've mentioned, Mazzara, Gallo, Odor, maybe Profar if he ends up being a player at the end of the year. Um, Ronald Guzman is right there on the fringes at first base. We've got Jose Trevino, who if he can if he can hit, will, is going to be the catcher of the future. He's won two uh, minor league gold gloves the last two years. It's just a matter of kind of waiting for the pitching to catch up. And, and I think that the hope is when they hit the new stadium in 2020, that a fresh young batch of pitchers. And of course that took a big hit this week, like you said, with Cole Riggins requiring Tommy John surgery, but Joe Palumbo is going to be back at some point this year. They really like Hans Krauss, the draft pick from last year. 
they've got a few guys. Kyle Cody is another one that he's uh, the Rangers minor league pitcher of the year last year. Cody also is on the shelf right now with elbow inflammation. So hopefully it's not going to be another Tommy John situation, but they've got some good young arms that they think are going to be um, if, if Michael Machuela is for real when he comes back and Johan Mendez needs to take a step forward this year. Maybe he can be your four or five. I think they think that this young core of kids is going to be pretty ready to go and contend by the first few years in the stadium. And I think maybe the hope is just that the rebuild isn't so much a full on three to four season tank like the Astros had to do and more just a tread water until the young kids are ready. And then we can just really push down on the gas and go for it. All right. So you said earlier that you can envision the Rangers ending up anywhere between 90 wins and 90 losses. We must now pin you down to mm-hmm. one number. How many wins will the Rangers oh, no. end up with in 2018? <laughs> oh, dear. All right. I try to be, a, I try to be an optimist. So I'll give you my optimist answer. I'm making weird sounds with my teeth now because I'm not sure I believe this stuff. That I'm about to uh, you know what? It doesn't matter because nothing that I say matters or is going to affect uh, this at all. So let's go. No, 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 no. wins and they get a wild card spot. No, no, no. no. Don't feel that free. The stakes. <laughs> no, feel more pressure. Uh, where do I actually think they end up? I, I think probably 79 wins. And what number do we take here? Yeah, 79. Okay. 79 was right. his his true answer, I think. So, okay. Should we split the difference and go with, should we split no, the difference? Don't, not a third, don't number. A third number, man. <laughs> no. Okay. All right. <laughs> all right. 79 it is. All right. So you can follow right. Levi on Twitter at 32EFUS. You can find him writing at The Athletic DFW. Thank you uh, again for coming on, Levi. Of course. My pleasure. You can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. Five listeners who've already visited Patreon and pledged a small monthly amount include Logan Davis, Joshua Wetzel, Jeremy Frampton, Justin W. Vandeventer, and Jason Nasi. Thanks to all of you. You can rate and review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, and you can also join our Facebook group by going to facebook.com slash groups slash Effectively Wild. One of the many good reasons to join the Effectively Wild Facebook group is that you can keep yourself apprised of any upcoming listener events in your area. I just want to mention a couple right now. A listener named John asked me to plug this today. There's going to be an Effectively Wild listener meetup in the D.C. Baltimore area next month, April 7th, which is a Saturday. There's a Bowie Bay Sox game, so it's going to be an Orioles-Nationals farm team matchup. John is getting tickets this weekend, so if you'd like to be included, you can email him or respond in the Facebook group event page. I will link to that event page on the show page at Fangrass. You can also just see it by going to the Facebook group and clicking on events. So that's the soonest one. Again, April 7th, and tickets are being purchased sooner. There's also going to be another New York Effectively Wild Hangout on April 28th at Foley's in Midtown. There's already been one at Foley's earlier this year, which went well, so they're doing it again. That has its own event page too. So again, I will link to the events section if you're in New York or the DC Baltimore area and want to meet up with some other listeners for some baseball discussion. That's a good way to do it. Thank you to Dylan Higgins for editing assistance. Please keep your questions and comments for me and Jeff coming via email at podcast at fangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you're signed up for that site. We do have two team preview podcasts remaining. As a reminder, 
please visit Banished to the Pen at banishedtothepen.com. That's a site started by Effectively Wild listeners. They're doing written previews to accompany our podcast previews. I've linked to the index of those previews on the show page. But before our next team preview podcast, we will do an email show. So next time, Jeff and I will take your questions. Talk to you then. Thank you.